Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here's The Activist Files podcast. Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Lexi Webster, Communications Associate at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I'm joined today by Imara Jones, award-winning journalist, content creator, and thought leader and founder of Translash Media, producing content to shift culture towards trans justice, and Diamond Styles, an activist and media maker and executive director of Black Trans Women, Inc., building leadership and advocacy among Black trans women. Both are also podcast creators. Imara hosts the Translash podcast, and Diamond hosts the Marsha's Plate podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for today's conversation. And also want to celebrate all of the ways that you have been celebrated and given your flowers this year. I'm really, really <laughs> just so honored to be having this conversation with you today. So getting right into, um, into our conversation, I really want to start unpacking with you um, these recent attacks on trans rights and reproductive justice, the ways that they intertwine and the ways that they intersect, um, and start thinking about the resilience and mutual care of our communities, both historically and recently, in response to these attacks. Um, so in, in your work specifically, what are you seeing? What are the conversations that you're having on the ground? And how are these types of legislative, legislative attacks playing out? How are they intersecting? How are they impacting you and people that you love? Um, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. These two issues are inherently intertwined. They are intertwined historically because the expansion of trans rights and visibility happens at about the exact same time as um, Roe v. Wade and the central conversation about who gets to control other people's bodies. And those two things have gone in parallel for the past 50 years. And there are so many ways in which um, for the right, those two conversations, those two movements represent twin threats to their desire and belief um, of the, in the need to create a Christian nationalist country. And that's why they are so focused on both. And we know that the organizations that are behind these trans bills across the country are the exact same organizations that have been at the forefront of turning back the clock on abortion rights um, since the 1980s. They are at the Heritage Foundation, um, focused on the family, the Family Research Council, um, and um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, among others, National Right to Life, but National Right to Life doesn't work on both issues. So we know that, the, that it's, it's the same opponents. It's the same billionaires with the same vision that are funding it. And we know that this movement is learning from each other. We know that the, um, the anti-trans movement 
is borrowing from many of the strategies that were learned in the uh, anti-abortion movement, such as beginning um, just this year, the targeting of trans doctors, the targeting of trans um, care for youth, um, which is a new development. And we also know that for the anti-abortion movement, um, you know, every single person that I know that has studied that movement and been embedded in that movement, um, many of them um, uh, posing as members of the far right in order to learn more, told me last year that when Amy Coney Barrett got on the Supreme Court, they were confident that they were going to win on Roe v. Wade. They've known for a year and a half. And that one of the things that they know that they have to do is to give this entire anti-abortion machine that we've spoken about something to do afterwards. It, you know, all that energy, all that money, all those volunteers have to go somewhere. And that they're pretty clear that they're going to take that entire movement and begin to turn it against trans people. So anything that we've experienced with anti-trans legislation, with um, the protest at trans events or where there are trans people, we're just at the beginning of that. There's so much more of that to come. And so these two ideas, these two movements are inherently linked and they are inherently linked for the far right. And I think that that's one of the most important things for us to understand and to realize. Yeah, thank you so much for that piece. And Diamond, um, I believe if if I'm understanding correctly, you're off in the um, on the West Coast today, or are you back Just at home? Back. Just got ah, back. Welcome back. <laughs> Glad you're back in your home. Loving your space. This feels like an altar that I'm able to <laughs> to bear it witness is. to. You. It literally is to all like trans and black people. Monica Roberts, Fannie yeah. Lou Hamer's, Baldwin. Mm. That's literally what it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, and then thank you for describing that out loud to our reader, our listeners as well, so they can get a sense of what is it you're seeing. I'm yeah. looking at these beautiful, uh, these beautiful lamps on either side that are illuminating you, art of, of black women in um, in head wraps and beautiful um, Aphrodisphoric exactly jewelry pieces. So 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 mm. lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. So and this is my mom. Ah, and your mother is joining us today, looking over us and blessing this space. You are lovable and deserve love. Yeah, so many things. That's what it's, I'm glad you got that. I, I was really just impacted very strongly, Imara, by the words that you had to say about the white supremacist and the also Christo-fascist elements of these movements, the ways that we, as a, as a white hegemonic and Christian hegemonic country, have been um, have been seeing not only a burgeoning movement, but a historic movement, a long, long-standing movement with lots of organizing on the on the right and on the far right, especially of anti-trans, anti-black, anti, anti-queer, anti-immigrant organizing to create and and found a and create a country that looks like it did at its foundings and looks in in the ways that they would like to see this country going. So I'm. Um, interested, uh, Diamond, to hear your reflections on some of the things that you heard from Imara, but also um, I do want to know from, from you and the work that you do, how are you impacted by these conversations? How are the attacks on trans folks, the anti-trans bills around the country, and the recent um, reversal of, of Roe v. Wade, how that's impacting your work? 
Absolutely. So uh, what I love about what Amara said is that she talked about our enemies in the sense of, you know, people on the right, but even the capitalism, how it how it affects the people on the left who are supposed to be our allies. When we think about um, prior to 2015, when gay marriage um, was you know, passed for the um, cisgender people who wanted to have gay marriage. Before that, they were asking our politicians to see how progressive they were when it comes to our community. They would ask them, what is your stance on gay marriage, right? And that was the litmus test of, you know, how progressive you are. If you think about once that passed, 2016 election with Hillary and Trump, they were asking, what is your stance on the bathroom bill? What is your stance on the trans issues? What is Because now we are the litmus test on whether or not you are progressive, whether or not you are where you need to be when it comes to the LGBT um, movement. And so we started to see about, we started to see more issues with us and with our allies. We started to see more performative things. Like when we think about how people fundraise, what grants were getting approved, it was things that ha- you had to have some type of trans inclusive issue in your grant in order to be able to um, get the money. Are you working on black trans women? What kind of what kind of um, programs are you having that are impacted? But what, what 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 I saw as a person who worked in the nonprofit industrial complex, so I love to call it. I saw people asking for the money, but they didn't have black trans people in leadership. The money really wasn't going to black trans peoples and. Um, letting them lead and in and and be impactful in the actual communities it wasn't it was nothing but cis white lgbt gays that were in positions of power we started to complain about that because black lives matter movement moved and moved people's mentality in a different direction and we started to complain why y'all don't have any chance in leadership there's people who are qualified why are you not putting them in that position and we started to see more and more now trans people in positions but it still has that toxic, I'm just trying to get money so I can be able to do whatever we need to do for our issues instead of being specifically proactive for trans people's issues in community. And so it is a very, very capitalistic, um, performative nature of even people on our side that's that's growing just as long with the people on the, the right um, to benefit themselves instead of just actually helping community. And that's what I see it from the nonprofit era of um, of this this fight that's going on, that's been going on since forever, but um, the new metamorphosis of it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I was transported when I heard you mention capitalism, when I heard you mention uh, the organizations that are vying for grant money that are vying for funds to, to do work, to, um, to do outreach work, to impact work in trans communities, but who have no trans people on their board, have no trans people yeah. uh, in leadership and managerial and supervisory roles. And I was taken back to 2020 uh, when 15,000 people stood in front of the Brooklyn Museum and Raquel Willis said, if you don't have tra- Black trans people, if you don't have Black trans women, if, you don't, if you're organization is lacking programming for trans people, you are obsolete. Yeah. And that sent that sent shivers through my body. And again today I, I felt the, the, the goosebumps when you said there are so many ways that this movement is being commodified mm-hmm. and commoditized for whose benefit and 
and and and this is what how capitalism and how capital corrupts. I'm I'm, I'm love to start to like maybe pivot a little bit more um, toward. I think Amara, you've already discussed a lot about where this came from, um, but I would also like to think about what is it that we're doing on on our side. We know who the villains are. We have a sense of like who is the opponent, who is it that we have to to combat. What is happening on our side? Who are our supporters? Who are our co-conspirators? Who are our collaborators? How are we working toward <clears throat> pushing back against the sense that trans people don't deserve to exist, don't deserve to use the bathroom, can't participate in sports, all of these things. Um, and either of you, if you want to take that. I see, that for me, how important it is for us not to be stuck in our silos. When we think about voter suppression organizers, when we think about um, reproductive justice organizers, when we think about trans organizers, we all cannot be stuck in our silos. I know that we may not agree and align with every single thing, but at the end of the day, our enemy is the same. We are fighting the same people, the same people who feel like that they can control our lives with their religion. And so it is important for us to be in communication with, uh, with each other. I made it a, in my organization, I made it a really, really strong point to be able to, to hit up people who are like, hey, I know that you are a voter suppression activist. What can we do to help you? Hey, I know that you are reproductive justice. I don't want to be censored that. I'm not a birthing person. And so I don't want to be censured in that space, but I know that if they come, when they come out of the, after the agency of your body, they're going to come after the agency of mine. And it's like clearly, as Amara, Amara just explained, they're going to come after us simultaneously. And so how can we figure this out together, really be proactive in getting out of our silos and actually working on the issues that we that we have together. And um, <laughs> June Jordan talked about it, how we may not, when we get to this goal line, we may go in different directions once we accomplish what we, we accomplish. <laughs> but at least right now, can we work together to get to solve the problem that we're trying to solve since we have the same enemy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, Yes to all of that, quite clearly. <clears throat> and I think, additionally, a couple of things. Just to expound a little bit um, on what Diamond said, um, don't you love saying Diamond's name? It always had, like evokes <laughs> richness <Glitters>. and beauty. Um, <laughs> so in any event, um, as Diamond said, you know, I think that um, what's really important to realize is that some of the largest organizations in LGBTQ Inc, Gay Inc, as it used to be known, mm -hmm. um, that have the depth, the resources, the big budgets um, to be able to count, help counter some of this are missing in action. And at the same time, she is correct that they are at the same time simultaneously fundraising off of trans stuff. <laughs> so that is, that's a problem that's got to be fixed. And I'm not going to say anything more about that because it's just apparent, but that's not going to work. That the biggest guns are silent at the most important part of the battle, but at the same time are raising money off of the fact that there's this battle, right? Um, and don't have enough people in trans leadership and certainly aren't engaged in Black trans communities and aren't doing enough for Black trans people in the South or rural trans people. Or we could really go on to those most in need. Like on it could on go on and on and on. And it's deeply frustrating for me as I witness it. 
And it's literally, you know, the alphabet soup of gay organizations to start doing, just start doing the various alphabets and you, you can figure it out. Um, I also, I also want to say that it's also important for us to begin to get our act together on this particular issue as a community. Um, you know, I, I personally know that some of the largest like trans organizations have just started this year having a regular phone call. And that is important, but that has to accelerate times 20, right? We need to be doing that. We need to be coming up with a strategy. We need to be networking with local trans organizations and the most um, affected states. We need to be asking them what they need. Um, and there just has to be, you know, a greater sense of, of urgency. And it's really hard because it's not as if we have a shortage of emergency issues in our community, right? Whether or not it be housing, economic justice, access to education, healthcare, intense job discrimination, like the list is massive, like that's not, and so it's, this is adding to the list of things that we have to cope with. But I think that this threat is, is different because we have all of the things that I just listed. And now these people are talking about using the government to literally legislate us out of existence which is a whole nother level of oppression that would compound everything that I just said by a massive number. Mm. So I think it's really getting our minds around this threat. I, I, was, I remember I was speaking to a trans leader lat, you know, this year, and this person, I mean, you know, I mean, it's tremendous and said to me, you know, I just really started focusing, I just really started taking these anti-trans bills seriously like this month <laughs> this is in this was in this is in june of 2021 and i said what do you mean and they were like i just thought it was just the general noise that the, the right always makes about trans people and i'm like this is totally different like this is not that like this is this is them i mean marjorie taylor green has already said that if the republicans capture the house the first thing she's going to do is in introduce anti-trans bill like it's gonna be a whole nother level. And we know that like when they do things like that, it then ups the violence against our community. People believe that they then have license to brutalize us more, to that that like political violence translates into actual real violence in our lives. Thanks. And so yeah. I think that one of the things that we have to just think about is understanding that this is a real threat for our community and beginning to try to figure out how we're going to respond and not just thinking that this is just the normal noise from the right, because this is an entirely different level of threat that we're facing. I mean, Diamonds in Texas has a sense of this as well, but the way in which like the anti-trans movement is now partnering and teaming up with the armed wing of the of the white nationalist movement. So mm. the way in which Proud Boys are showing up at trans events um, and other LGBTQ events, the way that people sponsoring legislation in Arizona, a senator there is actually also a member of Oath Keepers. So the way in which they're like beginning to fuse their anti-trans push with these groups that tried to overthrow the government Mm -hmm. So I think that like it's understanding that this is a very real thing that we're facing as a community. Um, and it's really hard because we face so many things. But I think that this is going to be a whole nother level that we have to begin to at least mentally prepare ourselves for. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, there's so many things that are coming to mind as you're speaking. I mean, the, the first was 
um, I did want to reflect again on, on Diamond, your, your discussion around how we cannot exist in silos. I also want us to remind ourselves that like, these aren't conversations that are having happening. Or these aren't issues that happen in silos. These are intersections that happen within people in our communities. Like mm-hmm. if we're talking about re- reproductive justice, there are people whose reproductive rights are being taken away within the trans community. There are transmasculine people who are now threatened both for how they present and how they navigate um, their healthcare, but then also being subject to threat by the same things, Imara, that you've described, Proud Boys showing up at um, at Pride events, showing up at reproductive centers, like these armed militia that are being mobilized and organized around the country mm-hmm. in, in ways that, you know, orthogonal to what, what I was mentioning earlier about how the, the right is, is, is out organizing us a little bit. Like they have really got this, these, they have template bills, they have weekly calls, they have monthly like membership meet, like they are organizing to make a reality, mm-hmm. the necropolitical and biopower, you know, just to, to borrow Mbembe and, and Foucault for a minute, like organizing around controlling who has access to life in this country and who doesn't. Yeah. And they, that's intentional because, you know, um, for the far right, um, which is now the mainstream right since Trump came, right. There is no far right. There is just the right now and the Republican party. So, you know, a key part of their belief is that America is not only meant to be a white country, it's meant to be a white Christian country. And they see the decline of white Christians um, and white white people who identify as Christians and white people both as frightening and anti-American. They see literally see it as anti-American. And yes. their belief is the way to turn that around is that you have to have more white Christians having babies. Mm-hmm. And at the core of that is the control of people's bodies. Yes. And so that means that you can't have these trans people because <clears throat> from their perspective, trans people disrupt the um, flow of reproduction. You certainly can't have these gay people and these um, black people. We have to find a way to su- suppress them so that they don't have an influence on policy because they're Christian, but they ain't really with our vision. And then we, of course, have to stop brown people from crossing the border. And if we put those things together, we can recreate what we believe America to be, which is a white Christian nation. So this is a singular vision that they have. And this is why the attacks on on us and on our bodies across the board are so intense, because for them, this is at the core of their mission to put white Christians back in the driver's seat in America. This is not like the way that liberals and the left see trans issues, which is like, oh yeah, trans things are cool, but we have so many other things to worry about. And so trans people, y'all just go in that corner and be quiet and we'll take a number, literally take a number. Um, And white people, uh, white Christians are looking at us and being like, no, those people that you're putting in the corner, that's actually one of the main targets and main issues for us to create our vision. And so we're going to go after them. And it's this total mismatch in in vision. Um, Yeah. And it's real. I think that's yeah. the biggest thing is that it's 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 absolutely one thousand percent real. And this is a multifaceted problem. So it's neat, it's going to be a multifaceted solution that we need. But yeah. why they are out organizing us is because yeah, the Proud Boys and you know those quote unquote far right, like Omar said, is all the right. Um, 
just yes they they may be doing some egregious stuff they may be you know trying to uh, june uh, january 6th the the capital they might be they might be doing these things but they're on our side and we, mm-hmm. we and we can denounce them all day but we know they're going to show up when we need them to show up we need to have that same camaraderie on our side where you know when you, anytime we have these issues, it, it feels like our identity politics get in our, in our way to stop mm-hmm. us from working with each other, at least until we get our goal, which is what I said earlier. It, we know the wait and see idea was particularly for black men. We know the wait and see doesn't work. We have to have a we have to have a plan that includes all of us getting across the finish line. And mm-hmm. so because there was a, there's been so many times that we had um um somebody say, even LGBT people, the gays and lesbians say, let's do our issue first and, you know, we'll come back and get um, trans people. But as we can see, that same fight, that same number of people that show up is not exactly the same. Yes, we have wonderful LGBT (laughs) allies. There's so many of them, but we do not have as many as we did when we were trying to fight for gay marriage. And so we have to we have to literally step up to the plate in the same exact way and know that this is a multifaceted issue and we need multifaceted solutions and prongs of how we're going to fix it just like they do. Mm-hmm. They know they got to go after reproductive. They know they got to vote to suppress black people. They know mm-hmm. they got to go after trans people and the doctors that are uh, allowing us to exist. They know that. And so this is their multi-prong strategy. We also need a multi-prong strategy as well. Yes. Yeah. That's right. As I say all the time, I'm I, I say that like the left talks internet intersectionally, but the right fights intersectionally. Come on now. You know that that's like that's that's the difference, right? They they understand these connections and they battle that way. And then liberals talk about intersectionality, but don't move that way. And I think that just to give in a really concrete example, um, on the Translash podcast, actually, we interviewed a trans person who had worked for a plan, Planned Parenthood um, and trans masculine and um, trans masculine non-binary. And they um, said, they told Planned Parenthood that they were working with on this project. They were like, you guys need to start focusing on on trans issues. Planned Parenthood is one of the largest providers of trans healthcare in the country. Um, uh, we have trans people who are coming to be, who can, who uh, give birth to be, be able to, to come into your clinics. Um, and you need to understand this intersection. And they said um, that, they were told by the Planned Parenthood um, uh, leadership, wherever they were, that um, that they um, would eventually get to um, trans people. And so they should stop talking about it and not worrying about it because eventually that was going to happen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so and then I- and, and then one year later, you know, everything is gone. Um, so I think that we have to understand the inherent links between these issues. Yes. Mm. Imara, because we are are dealing with all of these ways of of understanding what injustice looks like, understanding what these oppressive systems look like, how they work, how they've developed. And I, I, I wonder as somebody who my, my I myself have to set a lot of side of time time aside to really imagine. I yes. need to have time for myself to imagine. I have to take a step back from a lot of things in my life to to cultivate imagination. And I want to hear from you. What are you imagining? And what, yeah, what do you, what is your like, I don't know, your freedom dream or what does justice look like to you? However you describe that, 
What is your imagination? Where is your imagination taking you for us? Ooh, what I say, what I've said for a really long time, what I continue to say, and what I think is like a unitary vision that uh, most Black trans people have actually. You know, I really imagine a world where we are thriving, right? We are thriving in every single way imaginable. And I know that for that world to exist, that we have to fundamentally restructure the way that our society works so that we can thrive. Because in a world that's dominated by racism, by patriarchy, that's not possible. So how do we fundamentally shift our systems to center the well-being of people? How do we shift our systems to think of um, human development and self-actualization and realization as the purpose of society over the narrow accumulation of wealth through oppressive means? And I think that's what the vision is. And that's actually what the challenge is. Like we have to reimagine society for us to thrive because we're not going to fundamentally, we may make it and do better, right? If things change marginally in the system that we have, but we're not going to thrive. It's very different, right? That means we're not having trans suicides. Trans people are able to stay in school. Trans people are able to live out their lives without the idea um, of physical violence and oppression, right? Um, the list goes on. We are able to live healthy lives just as long as everyone else. Um, so that means we have to change society. Um, and that's what we represent is that invitation to everyone else to do that and to join us in that reimagining, that restructuring, that revisioning. And there's so many trans people across the country who are creating pockets of that reimagining, whether or not it be um, with regards to um, economic justice or housing or um, or criminal justice or environmental justice. Literally, there are these pockets of visioning. Um, Diamond just came from one from the transgender district. But there are these pockets of reimagining all across the country that Black trans people are involved in. And I think that the goal is to expand those um, so that we can build a society where we center the well-being of people. And in that society, Black trans people are thriving. And that's my dream. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. I'm uh, recently just going a lot. I'm re revisiting a lot of the teachings from Toni Morrison. One of the teachings that she left me with that is, continues to impact myself, impact me on a daily basis is when I say people, I mean Black people. And in very much a Toni Morrison way, when I say, when I say people, I mean Black trans people. And I, and I heard that in what you were saying, that like, when we say people, we can't just mean some, you know, abstract idea of who, a, what a personhood is outside of transness and outside of blackness. But like, we need to be very specific that like when black trans people are thriving, you know, everybody else is going to be good. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Like, that's exactly right. We are the indicator of the health of your society. How do you see us getting there? Like, is there a pathway that you're kind of like carving out for yourself that you see as um, a route to this this dream that you have or a route to this future that you see? Well, I think it involves all of us actualizing this vision that I had in our immediate worlds. You know, taking what we know how to do, right? And then saying, in the space that I have, 
you know, I am going to create a pocket of reimagination, right? I am going to create a different vision for how to do this, for how we are able to structure this and what it means to do this in a fundamentally different way. And I think that, and so I, I try to do that in my work in media and in communications and journalism, like that's a huge part of the way in which I think about my work. But I think that we all should do that wherever we are. We create these pockets of reimagination. And, you know, that's how, every, that's how everything big starts, is through everyone doing the small things at simultaneously that create the conditions for the bigger things to happen. So I really believe that that's the predicate. Um, you know, I think that it's what Tourmaline calls vision dreaming, right? And she sees her work, for example, as vision dreaming, like literally creating a vision of the future through art and a, with a Black trans lens. So whether or not you work in food or, you know, whatever you're working on, where you're working on politics, whatever you're working on, you know, I would say that you want to create a pocket of reimagination mm -hmm. where in that world, in that space. It's a fundamentally different way of doing things where our stories are centered, where we're thriving, and we're thinking of how to do things in, in a way that's totally different from the world around us. Amen. Oh, Ashay, thank you so much. And Diamond, turning it back over to you on the subject of imagination, on the subject of thinking about where it is that we want to go, um, the world that we want to see. And I think that especially if you could think about um, your community, your immediate community, mm. communities in the South, how do you see, what do you see? Like what, what you do is like your clair, clairvoyant eye, your, your forward thinking brain, like how do you see us going? Just yeah. reinforcing what Amar just said. It's like, imagine what can you do with your power? Now we know we don't have the power of, you know, so many, you know, so many people who can just kind of just, swipe a finger and, and fix some issues. Um, but with the power that we actually do have, what can we actually do in in the power that we, in our homes, in where we work? How are you being inclusive where you actually do have power? When we think about, I, uh, maybe like three years ago, I worked for Bath and Body Work um, and I worked for them for like eight years as a store manager. And when I came there <laughs> as the manager, it was nothing but a college age, um, um, Caucasian people working there. <laughs> and so, but when I left, it was Caucasian, Asian, Black, uh, six LGBT people on a, on a, on a, on a team of 24. It was, it was so diverse. And in that, in that little store, we were top two in the city. <laughs> we went from being seven to top too, in the city because of that diversity, because of all the talent and skill that everybody on that team had in, re in, in, in their ability to relate to people, the different languages that we all spoke, the different type of people, it made us grow. And I feel like in our country, we will see that same type of effect if we actually imagine and do something different. When we think about um, 
the, the amazing work of, we brought up the transgender district. When we think about um, Aria and her, you know, her vision of during COVID, giving out these mini grants and, and how that rippled across the rest of the country. People were giving out direct grants without all the um, barriers to help sex workers keep their phone on when their clients couldn't come because of COVID. We were, we were um, at our organization, we were literally mailing boxes of food to people who were, of course, laid off and or, and people were using this as an opportunity to fire trans people. Like, oh, we were trying to get rid of you anyway. So boom. <laughs> and so we were mailing food and, and going out with our masks to um, people who were unsheltered and, and, and get, getting them hand sanitizers and really thinking about how, what have we been doing that's working and what have we not been doing that we haven't tried yet and really imagining a new plan, um, reimagining new leadership, reimagining, you know, everything that we have been doing that hasn't been working, throw that away and do something new. Um, And while art and like art and entertainment is always the first place that attack that's why we see book bands and people not being able to show um different shows and different things happening in movies people you know gay relationships and blah 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 blah, blah. our art is the first place that they attack and so while i love these uh, th- these beautiful images this um tr- of trans people happening on television on shows also let's do that in our everyday lives if you are if you are a leader at a church and you want to be inclusive of trans people? How are you getting your church to go out into the community of trans people and say, hey, baby, you can come here and you will be welcome? Like, how are you going out into community? Because, of course, they're going to be scared to come to your church because of the history of religion and, you know, the Christian right and, you know, Muslim right and blah, 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 blah. How can we, how can you, if you want to be inclusive, go actually in community and find people who might um, resonate with your message and be inclusive? Really think outside of what you've already been doing to do better and to get to the people and make them um, inclusive and really do something for community if you are trying to do that. Oh, goodness. I'm I'm receiving so much and also like ruminating on so many things, that, especially as you mentioned in the church. Uh, there is this one writer named Julian Jarbeau who, who wrote a, t- a tweet that went viral a long time ago, quite a bit of time ago, like three years ago, four years ago. And said, God blessed me by making me transsexual for the same reason he made wheat, but not bread, and fruit, but not wine, because mm. he wants humanity to share in the act of creation. I'm only doing the good works here on earth as intended. And this is a piece that I think that can resonate with so many people, but specifically trans people who have been imagining and who have been participating in the act of self-creation in so many ways. And I think, Imara, you've already mentioned this to an extent, but one of the reasons that the right and one of the reasons that um, legislators who are trying to police the existence of trans bodies are so afraid of the, the notion of trans people existing is because we, by, mere, by merely existing, by virtue of being authentic in our bodies and in ourselves and affirming that who we are is not only okay, but correct and right, we disrupt the, the, the status quo that there's a prescribed path to anything. Transness is terrifying to people who would like to be dogmatic, who would like to spread prescriptivism. And so I'm, I'm really excited that we can have a conversation about this. And also, Diamond, excited about the ideas that you brought to the forefront around mutual aid, which we didn't even get super into, but I would love to hear mm-hmm. how mutual aid has been um, central to your community as like a, a last note. 
you had a, an episode, a whole episode of Translash um, about uh, about mutual aid. And so I, I think that that could be somewhere that I would love to explore with you too. I think that the the entire idea of mutual aid is a great model for our entire community, which is that like, we do have the power to help ourselves. You know, that's actually the fundamental belief is that we have the power to help ourselves and we have, and, and we know what we need and we can mobilize for that. And I think that if we kept that spirit on everything, if we can translate that spirit across the board, that fundamental knowledge that we know how to do. And the reason why it was so quick to spring up is because it's a muscle memory because people have done mutual aid um, for our friends, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a, it's a thing that you know how to do. And then it was taken and then applied to an entire community in crisis. Right. So it's that same idea of like taking and having fundamentally fundamental belief that we know what we need. We know how to deliver what we need and we have the resources and to do that. And I think that that is the very essence of power. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so, um, I think mutual aid is such a powerful thing for us to continue to talk about because um, it underscores like the fundamental power that, that trans people have even in extreme marginalization. And we have to hold on to that. Yeah. Wow. Well, Imara, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you have to depart, but your words were received and they're so, so I'm, I'm so, so grateful to have had you here today. Yes. Thank you, sister. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Diamond, um, I want to see more hats on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one we saw from pictures. And um, Lexi, you are smart and you are beautiful and you are intelligent and you have so much to offer our community. So I just want to give you encouragement to keep going and to keep growing and to keep using your voice. We need you. Thank you, Amara. I have chills. I, I, it's been such an honor. It really has. You're Take welcome. <laughs> right, bye, y'all. Bye. <laughs> Getting right back into uh, into our conversation. <laughs> it's like, you know, the girls can't get together without kicking. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> um, talking about mutual aid, can you tell me a little bit about how mutual aid has been central to the work that is being done in your community um, and how mutual aid might be different, how it might look different where you organize, where you live, where the, with the folks that you are, um, that you are building, building power with. So understand that Texas looks totally different than we would see like a, a New York or New York State or California when it comes to trans benefits and what helps them and how they have access to medical and how they have access to anything when it comes to um, housing, anything like it's totally different. We are in the dark ages when it comes to those kind of issues. So when we are organizing, we really, there is a emphasis on transferring resources from big org to the direct hands of the people to, to get what they need. It is a big emphasis on doing that. It's not this big old bureaucracy and machine that's, you gotta do da 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 No, it is we are trying to get money from big orgs to um, the hands of trans people. And so how we see that impacting is that we can actually directly help people. There was um, 
for example, there was a person who was homeless calling our organization, living out of their car, their car. We, because we, we, we have a whole network of people that we can call and see what's going on. We were literally able, because we don't have a lot of, um, um, homeless shelters that cater to trans people in our state, in our cities, in our state, period. So we literally was able to spend direct services money on getting this person an Airbnb for a month. And then, <laughs> and then when, because of the, because of COVID, the job, there was no jobs hiring. <laughs> and so we were able to actually um, get them a ticket to New Orleans to be in the House of Tulip, which is a homeless shelter um, ran by Mariah Moore. And we were able to get them down there and really, really start their life. Now they are working, they are thriving and doing what they need to do. And that is what mutual aid actually does. It actually gives them a leg up in this world that can be so harsh for us. There can be so many barriers. How can we eliminate those barriers and get them in a position where they can use their skills and their talents to thrive? And so we, we you know, that was just one example. We we helped so many people, in, particularly during that COVID, and we had we had to pivot. And so that is it's just a direct connection. When we talk about um, programming, sometimes programming can be really, really, um, there, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of people, like when we think about programs, a lot of programs are um, urban um, and and centered in the city when we can, when there are rural people who don't even have access to, that, access to it. And so there's many times that we don't think about, like I said, that multi-prong, that multifaceted solutions that we don't, don't think about that because we don't have trans leadership. <laughs> there's a lot of times that we don't think about the, the many facets of way we can help. And it only takes a little bit of pivot. You don't have to redo the whole thing. You, it just takes a little bit of pivot. And if you listen, we would be able to do that. And that, that is what mutual aid and that direct connection to the people has and does for you in solving a problem that you see out in the streets, that you see in people's homes, period. Wow, I'm just over here snapping and, and <laughs> nodding and like, <laughs> uh, just like moving my body in, in, in agreement and in, um, yeah, in like deep, in deep consideration of like how these things are showing up in my life as well. Uh, and then one thing that really stuck with me about what you're saying uh, of on the subject of, of mutual aid is that like there is a restructuring that needs to be done so that we can be instead of like sending all of our dollars out to these like you know not nebulous places not knowing who it's taking care of but like finding the source of like finding the site where need is mm -hmm. and making sure that the the need is filled the fact that you're able to get this person support for an Airbnb, get to the house of Tulip, getting them connected with Mariah Moore, like that's incredible yes. and an impactful work that doesn't only um, doesn't only lift up the person who is receiving and um, and being you know being transformed by this care, but also every person that they later come into contact with. Like mutual aid work doesn't just. And I think about the quote like. When you heal, you heal like seven generations back and seven generations forward. Like when you do mutual aid, when you work with people and make sure that their their material needs are met, they then take that that framework, that understanding of what community looks like, and they apply it to every aspect of their life. And so it comes back around yes. <laughs> every single time. 
And don't be so arrogant to think that you know everything. Don't be so arrogant to think that you, you know, you have the answers. We all, including me, including you, we all have blind spots. When we think of recently, I, I went to Paris to work with an LGBT organization there. And did you know that have you ever been, I want you to think about this. Have you ever been on an elevator and you were anywhere near the weight limit? No. Never. In the United States, I have never been on a on an elevator where the I was anywhere near the weight limit of that. Uh, there were in in our in our where we were staying, there was a elevator that was stopped working because you were too big. And it the limit was like 220. And I'm 300 pounds. And so that's a moment where somebody, unless you are a plus size person, you wouldn't even think about that this is a problem in this place. (laughs) And so that's what I mean. When I when I came when I came to Houston, I was homeless with fifty seven dollars in my pocket. Mm. I couldn't stay at the cisgender shelter because they said I wasn't a cisgender woman. I couldn't stay in the men's shelter because they said that because I had breasts, I could not, um, I could not, um, I, I was a liability. And if I got hurt, sexually assaulted or harmed, I was a liability to them. And I couldn't stay at the LGBT shelter. You know why? Did you age out? No. Oh. At the time, I wasn't aged out, but that that's what a problem too. But yeah. at the time, their funding only help people with HIV. And because I wasn't positive, I couldn't have a place to stay. (sighs) And so here I am, anything from the LGBT, from the straights, from the cis, any kind of safety net for me to benefit Mm. from that the government, that my taxes (laughs) was because I was working too, that my taxes go to help. I could not use those safety nets to to be able to actually have a home. So I had to sleep on another stranger, a trans woman that I met in a a Black Planet chat. (laughs) That's how, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And in a chat, I had to stay on her couch. That is how community shows up for me. That is how the community showed up. And this, and I have had so many times in my past where it's the community that stands up and, and their mutual aid, them having enough money to get me in a situation to help me out of my bind. And I want to make sure that us as an org at Black Trans Women's Inc., that we are stepping up to that plate to be able to use this money. We're getting, you know, 150,000 grants, so 150,000 grants here, 20,000 from this. How can we take that money and help the people on the ground who actually need our help? That's what you need to be doing as an organization. Yes. The reason that we see, it is not a coincidence that where we see the most anti-LGBT, anti-trans laws and bills, the number of them, the states that we see um, them coming up in, when we think about Florida, when we think about Texas being number one, and when we think about Ohio, when we think about Louisiana, when we think about Georgia, when we think about these things, it is no coincidence that those exact states have the highest number of trans deaths in the past five years, it is in Texas being number one, where I'm from being number one. If we if you calculate the trans death, the the states, Florida, Ohio, Georgia, Louisiana and Texas are the highest, have the highest rate of trans murders, trans deaths. And so <laughs> it is no coincidence 
that that is happening simultaneously as these bills, these tons of bills coming across the legislative branch. And so we have to be very, very clear that the all these things are connective. Those political things that are happening are also translating to when I'm riding on the bus and I'm sitting next to somebody and they are anti-trans, you are letting them know that they can bother me while I'm on my way to work. You are you can let them know that, that you're letting them know that they can call me a, a, a F-A-G. They can call me a he, she. They can call me all of these things when I'm trying to go to work and be and contribute to the, the fabric of America. You are giving them permission and license to not see my humanity and not care about me and, and can do extreme harms to me. And so it's really, really important for us to make that connection because that is literally where our country is headed to. If we don't get it together and come together and work, well, I feel like I'm sounding like Claire Huxtable. If you don't get it together, Elvin, <laughs> you ain't going to see no kind of nothing anywhere, anyhow. <laughs> like we have to get it together, y'all. We have to come together. We got to put some of these identity politics down and actually see where we align, where we can work and create multiple faceted strategies in order for us to to get to another level in this fight. We got to organize better. Mm. Diamond Styles, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I'm I'm like once again, there's been so many moments in this conversation where I've had chills. <laughs> and I mean throughout throughout everything that you were saying, I was like, ooh, I was like on the brink of tears because like, you know, this is personal shit. This is stuff that yes. you know oh walking the, you know, in New York as well, like, doesn't matter where you are, uh, you could be walking down the street and get trendy faggot, you can get whatever. Yeah. I don't know if we have to edit that out, but we can get yeah. all of these things yes. no matter where you are. And, and certainly- We can't certainly. edit it out of our lives. Thank we you. cannot edit, we can edit it here, but we can't edit that out of our lives. We have to hear it, we have to have the harm. We don't yeah. have to have it, but we, when somebody is given license to do that, we can't mm -hmm. block it because we don't know it's coming sometimes. We can't avoid it, mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we have to be and we have to be telling the truth. We have to be doing truth telling around the harm because I mean if, if I self-censor, if I self-edit, like it's it doesn't, you know, it's not made clear that these are not abstract concepts. These are the material, material conditions of our communities. These are the ways that we live our lives every single day, either in fear of or in anticipation of or under threat of all of these ways that we are made to feel not only in our you know, financial, but in our daily, most simple going to the grocery store, doing the laundry, right. like the ways that we are made to feel precarious. So I'm, I'm so appreciative of not only that truth telling that you've been able to so beautifully sum up today, but also all of the thinking about how do we convert that? How do we mm -hmm. transform? So I'm, I'm so appreciative of not only that truth telling that you've been able to so beautifully sum up today, but also all of the thinking about how do we convert that? How do we mm -hmm. transform? Because if it's one thing we're going to do, it's going to, it's going to be transformed. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. History told us that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. 
That's all until next time on The Activist Files. 